0: This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu/podcast.
1: Good evening. My name is Dale Soden. I'm a professor of history here at uh, Whitworth, and I uh, want to welcome you to the annual Simpson Duval Lecture. Before I introduce our speaker this evening, it's been our tradition to say a few words about the gentleman for whom this lecture is named, Clem Simpson and uh, Fenton Duvall. It's special tonight because Ron White, our speaker, uh, was a colleague of Clem and Fenton, and uh, so it, again, is one of the, the great uh, moments of convergence where we get to, we get to hear from someone who knew, knew these two gentlemen. But if you did not, I would just say a a couple of words here. I think it's difficult to overstate the importance and influence of these two men on Whitworth College, now Whitworth University. I think it's fair to say that President Frank Warren did more than anyone to define Whitworth as a Christian university. But I also think it's fair to say that Fenton Duvall and Clem Simpson did more than any other two people to define Whitworth as a Christian university that fostered intellectual curiosity and courage, virtues that we still try to cultivate in our students today. Dr. Simpson and Duvall were primarily responsible for inventing the core curriculum. If you're a student at at Whitworth, still in place. They were among the first faculty to realize the importance of overseas study. Uh, Clem and Fenton cared deeply about the liberal arts and the importance and their importance to our society and culture. They were first and foremost gentlemen scholars in the best sense of that word. They loved students and students to this day just talk about the enormous influence that these individuals had on their their lives, even to to this day. Uh, And they loved their disciplines, history and English and they loved Christ. By the time I came to Whitworth in 1985, they had both retired, but it was quickly obvious to me how deeply influential these two two people uh, were and continue to be in the life of this, uh, this institution. So tonight, it's our distinct pleasure to welcome back to Whitworth historian, author, professor, pastor, Ron White. He is indeed one of the nation's leading scholars on Abraham Lincoln, and now becoming known as one of the leading scholars on Ulysses S. Grant. White's books on Lincoln include Lincoln's Greatest Speech, the Second Inaugural, The Eloquent President, a Portrait of Lincoln Through His Words, and A Lincoln, a Biography. His latest book is American Ulysses, the subject of tonight's lecture, and the widely acclaimed and award-winning biography already of Ulysses S. Grant. Ron's research and writing about Lincoln may seem an unusual professional turn for a man in the 1970s who served as religion professor and chaplain here at Whitworth. But in the 1990s, while teaching at UCLA, White taught an elective course on Lincoln that turned into a personal passion. After reading Lincoln's second inaugural address, he said in an interview at UCLA, quote, I was just blown away. I wanted to find a book on the address, but I couldn't, so I wrote one. (laughs) Lincoln's, quote, strangely contemporary words in uh, Ron's, um, Ron's mind captivated him. White writes of the beauty and the music of Lincoln's language and details how Lincoln built an intellectual diary through notes written on slips of paper, some of which became the basis for his future speeches. White is the author and editor of nine books on American intellectual, religious, and social history. He has lectured at the White House and has been interviewed on the PBS News Hour. Uh, furthermore, his uh, op-eds have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Christian Science Monitor. Ron is a graduate of UCLA with a degree in history and the Princeton Theological Seminary, having earned a Ph.D. in religion and history from Princeton University. Ron came to Whitworth to serve as chaplain between 1974 and 1981. During that time, he founded the Whitworth Institute of Ministry, which many of you have participated in. In addition to teaching at Whitworth, he has taught at UCLA, the Princeton Theological Seminary, San Francisco Theological Seminary, where he served as academic vice president for many years, Colorado College and Ryder University. He is a fellow at the Huntington Library, a visiting professor of history at UCLA, and a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum. In 2009, he delivered the keynote address at Whitworth's undergraduate commencement ceremony, and Whitworth awarded him an honorary doctorate of humane letters that same year. On a very brief personal note, I first met Ron in the early 1990s, and since then he has been a great friend to me and I know to many of you in this, in this uh, room and a mentor. He's offered insight, helpful critique of my own work and has been a great conversation partner through these many years. And so we've been working long and hard to get him to come for this, uh, this stint at Whitworth. Ron will be here for the next five weeks His schedule includes teaching a course that started today for Whitworth history students, uh, public lectures in Spokane, Gig Harbor and Bellevue, Time with Pastors, preaching at the Whitworth Presbyterian Church on April 30th, and then this Thursday back here as part of the Leonard Oakland Film Festival. Ron will comment on the film Lincoln uh, prior to its showing here in the Robinson Teaching Theatre. I must confess, I was relieved to see how Ron was uh, attired for his address tonight. We have uh, scoured the Whitworth archives for photos of Ron during his time at at, uh, Whitworth. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sorry to report, Ron, that in every single photo you are wearing these plaid pants. so we collectively give thanks for retiring those at some point in your, your life. So please join me in welcoming uh, Ron White.
0: I'm going to one more It's great to be at Whitworth. You're always going to be surprised. <laughs> For my five weeks here, I want to really thank uh, President Beck Taylor, Vice President Scott McQuelkin, and my dear friend, Professor Dale Soden. Uh, To be invited to offer the Simpson Duvall Lecture is really a distinctive honor. I arrived at Whitworth as a 30-something chaplain and professor of American Christianity. And I think I was informed I may have been invited, but I think I was informed I would be part of the Core 150 team my first fall. And I quickly learned that one of the team members was Dr. Clarence Simpson. And I felt something between anxiety and terror at that prospect, because his reputation preceded him. I now, in light of my grant book, realize that he was a very understated person, very unassuming, very modest, but he was such a giant in terms of his understanding of his craft and his ability to teach Whitworth students. I also came to know Dr. Duval. These two men were giants. They were Renaissance men. They were deeply involved in the Christian faith and yet they were so widely open to the cross currents of American culture. Really incredible persons. Of all the places that I've been privileged to serve, Whitworth, I say again and again, has been the most formative for my life. Here I learned about the integration of faith and learning. I don't know that we quite used the terms then, mind and heart, but that's what it was all about. And for me this evening, this is really a family affair. My daughter, Melissa, is here. She attended, back in those days, Whitworth Elementary, which is now Whitworth University. My son Brad attended the Whitworth Early Learning Center, which was then housed in the basement of the Whitworth Presbyterian Church. He was baptized in that church. President Ed Lindemann stood up at his baptism. And I'll never forget the day I went to get him. He was four years old. Brad, you're here, I'm gonna tell this story anyway. <laughs> and as we emerged from the stairs up, we walked past the sanctuary and the doors of the sanctuary are opened and little four-year-old Brad looked in and he said, that's the place where I was advertised. That's the place where I was advertised. That's good theology. (laughs) And my granddaughter Emily will graduate from Whitworth this May. This is a family affair. My book was published on October 4, 2016, and I've been asked again and again in recent months why did I write a book on Ulysses S. Grant? I did so for the same reason that I wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln. Once in a while we encounter in American history the story of individuals whose lives are forged in multiple personal crises and often various defeats but nevertheless, they rise in remarkable triumph. But what we need to hear today is that their triumph was never about themselves. It was always about a cause much larger and greater than themselves. In the year 1900, the first year of the 20th century, Theodore Roosevelt was asked to give his assessment of who were the great leaders in American history. He said, mightiest among the mighty dead loom the three great figures of Washington, Lincoln, and Grant. So I put before you behind me this lithograph from the end of the 19th century, what Americans thought then were the three great leaders, Washington, Lincoln, and Grant. Theodore Roosevelt went on to say of second rank, of second rank were Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. Alexander Hamilton, and Andrew Jackson of second rank. Well, we'll answer the question, or you might want to ask more about it in the questions and comments. How did Grant fall so far? I've been privileged for the first time to participate in the C-SPAN survey of American presidents. It was released on President's Day, February 2017. The third they've done, 2000, 2007, 2017. To no one's surprise, Abraham Lincoln was number one, again. But Grant has been rising in those three polls, nowhere more than in the category in which we were asked to rank those presidents who contributed to the social justice of our country. Grant ranked number 10. I think he should rank even higher, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But who is Ulysses S. Grant? If I were to ask that question as I did in class this morning of Abraham Lincoln, the students could answer quite clearly. They knew already a great deal about Abraham Lincoln. But who is Ulysses S. Grant? If I may, the man of middle height, accompanied by a young boy, arrived at the crowded Baltimore and Ohio Railroad station in Washington on a cold, crisp morning. It was March 8, 1864. He hailed a carriage and asked the driver to take them to Willard's Hotel. At the northwest corner of Pennsylvania Avenue and 14th Street, only two blocks from the White House, the man and boy stepped from the carriage and walked directly to the front desk. The man, 42 years old and wearing a travel-stained duster, asked for a room. The clerk sniffed brusquely. Did not the visitor know that in wartime Washington, few rooms were available, especially at Willard's, the finest hotel in the nation's capital? The clerk dallied, then informed the travelers he could give them a small room on the top floor. That would be fine, the man said softly. The clerk asked the guest to sign the hotel register. When the clerk turned the register around and read the signature, U.S. Grant and Son, Galena, Illinois, he turned pale. He gasped, General Grant, why didn't you tell me who you were? And would you like to bring to your memory the modern big personalities who would say, don't you know who I am? (laughs) Peering more closely, the clerk could now see that underneath the duster, mostly hidden, was the blue uniform of a Union officer. Grant typically wore a private's uniform. The only way that you would know he was a general were the stars on his shoulders. The clerk had seen posters portraying the hero of the West everywhere in Washington. Suddenly attentive, he blurted out that he was reassigning Grant and his son to parlor suite six, the same suite that Abraham and Mary Lincoln had stayed in three years before when they arrived in Washington. Now that he knew who was standing in front of him, the clerk handed Grant a sealed envelope. The general opened it, finding an invitation to join President Lincoln at a reception that evening at the White House as the guest of honor. Because he had not served in the Eastern theater of the Civil War, curiosity about Grant punctuated conversations everywhere. Many knew the outline of his remarkable rise to fame, but still they wondered out loud, Who was he? How had he succeeded when so many Union generals had failed over the past three years? Why had the President elevated him to the position of Lieutenant General, the first man since George Washington to hold that rank? Why had Lincoln tapped him to come from the Western Theater to lead all the Union armies? Well, to be sure, Grant was a figure in my 2009 Lincoln biography. But after the first year or so of research and writing, I had to come to a personal confession. I didn't really know the man. And I think most Americans do not either. He was quiet, unobtrusive. I think I'd call him an introvert today. I didn't really know him. So then I discovered that Grant was really a puzzle of many pieces. And I had to somehow try to enter into that puzzle over the next seven years to see if I could somehow inhabit this man and understand who he was. The first part of the puzzle was to understand the boy, the young man. My early readers cautioned me that my readers probably wouldn't stand still to read about the boy and the man. They wanted the young man. They wanted to get to the adult figure. Publishers today are thrilled to be publishing biographies, but most of them are often not, from my point of view, biographies. They move very quickly over the young person's life. I thought about that today as I met these 18 to 22-year-olds in my class this morning. Well, I'm instructed for the first part of this puzzle by Grant's own words. He says, I read but few lives of great men, because biographers do not, as a rule, tell enough about the formative period of life. What I want to know is what a man did as a boy, what a woman did as a girl. That's what makes Whitworth so important. 18 to 22, this is where our lives are formed. I've met some of you before the address this evening. Some of you were here when I was chaplain. And I can tell you and you can tell me how these four years are so formative in who we will become as adults. Secondly, I became quickly convinced that Julia, Julia Dent, was important in this story. She was the sister of Grant's roommate, senior roommate at West Point. He graduated from West Point in 1843. When he entered West Point, he was five feet, one inches tall, and 105 pounds. He barely made the height limit. He was posted to Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis, which was the largest army barracks as the army was wont to protect settlers, moving west to California, Oregon, and Washington. And there he met Julia, love at first sight, an amazing relationship. I think it's one of the classic American marriages. People would find them in the White House when he was president. They came upon them like they were bashful lovers holding their hands with each other. Well, early on in writing this book, I have a friend in Hollywood who said, Ron, this might make a good television miniseries. Well, my ears perked up. He said, let's have lunch and talk about it. But he said, as you prepare to do this, tell me what you think are some of the most important characteristics of Grant. So we got together for lunch that day, and early on I said, I want to tell you about Julia, and I want to tell you about their marriage. They had one of the most remarkable American marriages, and then I saw his face begin to frown. He said, that will never do in a television miniseries. A good marriage, that will never do. (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? Oh, he said, television miniseries are all based on internal tension. I said, internal tension? What is that? So I sent him the first few chapters a few months later of my biography, and he said, there is internal tension. And he's right. Grant's family was strongly anti-slavery, living in Ohio. Julia's father owned... 30 slaves. Grant's family refused to come to the wedding. He was marrying into a slaveholding family. Her father gave her four slaves as a wedding gift. We get married when we're very young and we think it's only the two of us against the whole world and we fail to recognize we're marrying into, are we not, an extended family? He had to live with old man Dent who was pro-slavery who did not want his daughter to marry a vagabond soldier. Well, in the end, old man Dent lived in the White House (laughs) and was terribly proud of his son-in-law, now the President of the United States. A third part of the story is how to understand the failures that happened in Grant's life. He served in the war with Mexico, with distinction, came back, married Julia, the father made him wait four years to marry Julia, he tried a Laban-like, most people don't know what that means, you do, a Laban-like switch. He said, why don't you marry Nellie, the younger sister? No, he said, I'm not marrying Nellie, I'm marrying Julia. (laughs) He marries Julia, they're posted to New York and Michigan and then posted out to Oregon. And Julia cannot come with him, she's pregnant with their second child. And I think sometimes we have latent qualities within us when we're young and Grant is charged with leading this, the, the travelers across the Isthmus of Panama. People will die within four hours from cholera. And there he discovers or exhibits his leadership. He, he's posted to Fort Vancouver near Portland and then Fort Humboldt near Eureka, and then he falls into loneliness and despair and drinking. And the irony is that on the same day the Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, Sends him a letter saying, you've now been promoted to captain, and Jefferson Davis receives a letter from Ulysses S. Grant, resigning his military post. He must be with Julia and their children. So he returns to live in the shadow of Old Man Dent near St. Louis. He builds his own cabin, which he calls sardonically hardscrabble. You can still visit it in St. Louis. And then, humiliation after humiliation, in the last of the seven years he's posted, he moves to Galena, Illinois, taking a position underneath his younger brother in his father's leather goods store. And then the Civil War breaks out. And Grant is the only West Point graduate in Galena. And so his meteoric rise begins. It's an amazing story. But in his Let's see, here do I, here it is. But I skipped quickly over one thing that I do want to say. Grant, in those difficult, terrible seven years, was sometimes reduced to selling wood on the streets of St. Louis to provide for his family. One of the jewels of scholarship, which is often sitting for long hours looking at dusty records, happened to me on a day in, at, the, at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield. I came across this document which in itself tells an amazing story. It is December 23, 1857. Grant has almost nothing left to provide for Julia. He walks into a pawn shop two days before Christmas and pawns his most precious possession, his gold watch, that he might buy Julia a Christmas present. But now begins his meteoric rise. This is probably the most iconic photograph of Grant, the Civil War general who rises to command the largest army before the Civil War it was 14,000 in, uh, in uh, the war with Mexico. Grant is now commanding hundreds of thousands of men in the Civil War. But there's another part of the puzzle If Grant was such a good judge of character in the Civil War, why was he not such a good judge of character as president? How did it happen that these scandals seemed to erupt in his second term? Did he not see what these men were doing? Was he too trusting? That's one of the most vexing questions. Very, very hard to answer. But one of the things that I think is important in all of our stories is when we make a mistake whether it's our own or through circumstances, how do we respond? All of us make mistakes. All of us are defeated. I'm fascinated by the way Lincoln responds and Grant responds to the mistakes in their life. Do they own up to them? Do they admit them? We'll talk more about that. And finally, and most importantly, I'm interested in the faith story of these individuals. This, to me, is the missing part of American biography. In the last five years, there's been two important biographies written of Dwight Eisenhower. Both of them completely omit the faith story. When I meet David Brooks, and I will, I will tell him that even in his wonderful road to character, he mistakenly says that Eisenhower was not a religious person. Well, he's only read the biographies, I'm not critical of him. Did you know that Dwight Eisenhower was baptized while he was President of the United States? Did you know that he joined the Presbyterian Church while he was President of the United States? Three years ago I had lunch in Philadelphia with David Eisenhower, Eisenhower's grandson, and he told me that Billy Graham told him that of all the presidents that Billy Graham had known, he had the most profound conversations about the Christian faith with Dwight David Eisenhower. You won't find any of that in any Eisenhower biography. So one of my tasks in the Lincoln biography was to tease out the faith story of Abraham Lincoln. It's a fascinating story. It's a Presbyterian story, if you will. I wondered, is there a faith story in the story of Ulysses S. Grant? Yes, there is. It's a faith story. It's a Methodist faith story. And finally, I would say that my approach to biography is what I call from the inside out. I want to know who is the character of this person. Not what Grant did, what Lincoln did, but who are they as persons? And I have gone to school on David Brooks' wonderful book, The Road to Character. This, to me, is the key component of what we should be looking for in our leaders. What is the character of these people? What's their sense of integrity? What is their moral courage? Who are they at the core of their being? This is what elevates, I think, Lincoln and Grant. Well, this evening I want to share with you three episodes that I think lift up who is Ulysses S. Grant to maybe better tell his story. The first comes from the Civil War. He comes to Washington, Lincoln greets him, and Lincoln now gives him charge and command of all the Union armies. Well, Union armies or American armies did not march in the wintertime. That's why the British were so surprised when Washington crossed the Delaware on December 25th. American armies do not march in winter, cold, and snow. But on May 4, the Union Army, under Grant's command, 125,000 men set off to cross the Rapidan River into Virginia. His army, an eastern army, he's come from the west, that makes them somewhat distrustful of him. That eastern army had crossed four times before into Virginia and four times before they had retreated in a humiliating retreat back towards Washington. What would happen this time? He starts out riding his huge 17 hands high horse, Cincinnati. He's got his low felt hat tucked slow over his eyes. They cross the Rapidan River to meet Robert E. Lee. Lee has only 55,000 men, but these men know Virginia. Grant has never been in Virginia. And then he meets the real obstacle. It's the obstacle of nature. It's the wilderness. I've been to all these places. With a guide of Park Service visitors or Civil War historians, I've walked through the wilderness. The wilderness, you see, is this deeply compacted forest of scrub oak, only five foot tall, but it is so tightly compacted that the sunlight barely can see through in the middle of the day. And so within hours, they begin to have happen what they didn't have a term for yet, friendly fire. They lose track of who's on either side. They begin to shoot at each other. And then after five hours, the forest catches fire. It catches fire and men are burned to death. And as that fire comes towards them, some men will kill themselves before they are burned to death. And so at the end of two days, Grant has suffered an horrendous 18,000 casualties. He has discovered that artillery is pointless in the wilderness. Cavalry has no use, and as he sits by his campfire at the end of the second day, a Union general arrives in camp and says these words out loud, strongly: "I know these methods with past by past experience. He will throw his whole army between us and the Rapidan and cut us off completely from our communication." Horace Porter, Grant's aide, who wrote this wonderful memoir, campaigning with Grant watched the silent Grant rise from a sitting position and surprisingly stand up and say strongly, I am tired of hearing about Lee is going to do. Some of you suddenly seem to think he's suddenly going to turn a double somersault and land on both of our flanks at the same time. Go back to your command and think what we are going to do ourselves instead of what Lee is going to do. Well, at that moment, How many of you have seen the movie Lincoln? It's such a great movie. And you may remember that Lincoln spends a lot of time in the telegraph office. I have the privilege of working at the Huntington Library. That telegraph office was actually a civilian enterprise set within the war department. And when the war was over, the civilian in charge of that took his telegrams and went home. And they suddenly surfaced five years ago. And the Huntington bought them for $200,000. The Confederacy could never break the code of the Union communication system. It's all done in cipher. 14 letters for Lincoln, 12 letters for Grant, and you can go online and you can help break the code right now as we're still deciphering what those telegrams say. Well, Lincoln's sitting in the telegraph office and a congressman comes up to him and says, what's going on about Grant in the wilderness? Lincoln says, I, this is so Lincoln-esque, well, I can't tell much about it. You see, Grant has gone into the wilderness, crawled in, drawn up the ladder, and pulled in the hole after him. And I guess we'll just have to wait till he comes out, till we know what he's up to. (laughs) Well, the problem was that the telegraph wires had been cut. So that evening, when Grant is standing there with a general, a correspondent says, I will give $1,000 for anyone who is willing to get through the Confederate lines and get a message to Lincoln. Young Henry Wing, 24 years old, says, I will try. So he walks over to Grant and he says, what should I say if I get to the president? Grant, I I imagine this slow, paused, what would he say, a man of few words. He said, simply say this to Lincoln. There will be no Turning back. There will be no turning back. What happened in the Civil War battles was that armies would fight for two or three days, exhausted, then they would retreat, repair, refit, and they'd fight again. And Granted determined he had the numerical advantage. He would not do that. He would just keep fighting. So Wing starts off. He meets the Union sentries who say, you'll never get through. The Confederates will stop you and kill you. Swallow the message, which he had written down. Change your uniform. And when you meet the Confederate sentries say, Robert E. Lee has just won a great victory in the Battle of the Wilderness. So he gets to Lincoln. He gets to Washington. And as he does, Lincoln turns to his young secretary, John Hay, and says, how near we have been to this thing before and failed. I believe if any other general had been at the head of this army, it would have been on the other side of the Rapidan River by now. It is the dogged pertinacity, the dogged pertinacity of Grant that wins. When you write a book, you become surprised often by those who respond. And for me, the most surprising response was that I had heard, heard, The General David Petraeus was a great fan of Ulysses S. Grant. So I said to the publisher, I don't know how we're going to do this, but why don't we reach out to General Petraeus and see if he would be willing to offer a, a comment, a blurb, an endorsement of the book. He said he would. And he wrote back and said, and please give my greetings to my fellow Princetonian, Ron. Well, David Petraeus has a PhD in the Woodrow Wilson School of International Relations. So I wrote and thanked him and he said, don't thank me. He said, by the way, why don't we start doing some events together? So we've done an event in Los Angeles, we've done an event in New York, and General Petraeus says in those events that without question, Ulysses S. Grant is the greatest American general. Based on what? The first category he uses is what he calls strategy, the overall sense of the battle. The second is operation. How do you coordinate, as Grant did in the East, five different armies, and the third is tactical, the battle for Mosul, the battle for a particular city. Grant told us, and I heard him tell this to the ROTC cadets at USC four weeks ago, that when he went to Iraq to lead the surge, he read Grant, and he spoke to his officers about Grant. And it's not pertinacity, that's a 19th century word, he said, Grant is the most determined American general we have ever had. If I had the privilege of having lunch or dinner with one American, it would be Ulysses S. Grant. So I've learned a lot from David Petraeus about who is this General Grant. Well, the next day Grant arises in the morning, what would he do? My wife Cynthia and I are going to go to France in June. Her father went through Normandy on the fourth day and we're going to spend three days in Normandy. Well, the soldier at Normandy, the soldier in Afghanistan or Iraq or the Civil War soldier doesn't really understand what's happening. Are we winning? Are we losing? Grant determines on that third day that they will march again. They will turn towards Lee. But he says to General Meade, do not give the order until this evening. I don't want the order given. So at 8 o'clock that night, the order goes out. The fires are still burning. The smoke is in the air. And Grant starts down that road. I've walked that road, the Orange Pike Road. And you come to a place that's the Chancellorsville Junction, and the road either turns left and goes back north across the Virginia border to Washington, DC, or it turns south towards Richmond. And the word is out, Grant is coming. Grant is coming. His prancing horse, Cincinnati, is prancing in the twilight. And the men gather around this junction. What will he do? Four times this Union Army has retreated. Four times they've been humiliated. They gather at that Chancellorsville Junction, and fortunately for us, Charles Forbes is there with pen or pencil and paper, and he records this dramatic moment as Grant gets to this Chancellorsville Junction. It's almost as I can believe him pausing. He gets to that junction, and he turns south. And the men cheer and throw their hats in the air, and this is a singing army, and they sing, aren't we glad to get out of the wilderness? And at that moment, Horace Porter says, Grant has now, now, won the respect and the regard of these soldiers. Well, the second episode I want to share is from Grant's presidency. He's the only person elected consecutively to two terms between Abraham Lincoln and Woodrow Wilson. And yet for many Americans, his presidency has been marred by the scandals, six major scandals of his second term, which I think unfortunately diminishes who he really was and what he did. In his first inaugural address, I was surprised to find that he says, we must address the Indian question. We have treated the Indian terribly in this country. Now he will go against his closest military friends, William Tecumseh Sherman, and Philip Sheridan. Grant would not campaign for president in 1868. Rather, he travels west to see what's going on. He travels all the way to Colorado, and he comes back with a perception, the problem is not the Indians, the problem is the settlers. So he announces in his inaugural address, we're going to address the Indian question. Well, how will he do it? He does it by convening all of the Christian churches, Protestant and Catholic. He said, please send me agents of your mission boards We have such corrupted Indian agents. I think the mission boards of our Christian churches are the solution to how we can treat the Indian more benevolently. And so Grant starts off in this way. The United States had been in a horrendous fight with England because in England eight different Confederate raiding ships had been launched, sinking all kinds of Union tonnage and civilian tonnage. There's a huge anti-England feeling in America. Grant decides we must change this. This will be, he believes, in the 20th century, our greatest ally. And so he sets out to solve what's called the Alabama claims. The Alabama was the worst of the Confederate raiding ships. It was finally found off Cherbourg and raised by the French Navy in 1984. And in a remarkable set of initiatives, he settles the dispute with England and he does it in Geneva by the court of international arbitration. And he says international arbitration is the way we should now settle our disputes, not by war. The Civil War warrior doing that. But the most remarkable part of Grant's story is his attitude towards the African Americans who are the freedmen. Did you know? But we think Barack Obama was the first president elected by a non-white majority. Not true. Ulysses S. Grant won the electoral college dramatically in 1868. He only won the popular vote because 400,000 African Americans voted for him. Did you know that by 1890, only 3,000? I'm saying this correctly. Only 3,000 African Americans would be allowed to vote in the South. Only 3,000. So Grant, despite his father's strong anti-slavery position, sometimes experiences a good guide as he traveled further, deeper into the South. His empathy, I think that's a quality of leadership, his empathy for the African-American slaves grew. And remarkably and ironically, as his own Republican Party began to retreat from protection of the African-Americans and their right to vote, guaranteed in the 15th Amendment, Grant steps forward. And he wants to defend this right to vote. This, I think, is a central part of revisioning who is Abraham who is Ulysses S. Grant. This slide captures the oh, I've got to say a little bit about his campaign for president. This is a funny one. His father was a tanner. So he and his vice president, Colfax are running as tanners. We respectfully inform the people of the United States that they will be engaged in tanning old Democratic hides until after the third day of November, 1868. References, Robert E. Lee, General Simon Bolivar Buckner, John Pemberton, who he defeated at at Vicksburg, and other distinguished persons of the same persuasion. (laughs) One of the persons who campaigned for him was Frederick Douglass the leading African-American of the 19th century. Douglas had a somewhat ambiguous relationship to Abraham Lincoln, not so with Grant. He campaigned in 1868 and 1872. He had an enormous admiration for Ulysses S. Grant. But here is one of the Thomas Nast cartoons. Nast is the father of what we call political cartoons. Notice this cartoon. At the top it says, worse than slavery. What they're referring to is the congratulation between the Ku Klux Klan on the right and the White League on the left. And here's a mother and father cradling their dead or dying infant. Signed, Thomas Nast. You know, in America, we have two things going on at the same time. We treasure as we should the the right of one person to vote, but we have a continuing effort at voter suppression. In September, the Brennan Center at the New York University said, 14 different states are intent on suppressing the vote in the United States in the 2016 election. Well, the voter suppression of the 19th century was, to be sure, much more violent. It was the Ku Klux Klan. Organized in 1866, the Ku Klux Klan beat, whipped, maimed, kidnapped, and hanged thousands of black citizens. What was their aim? Their aim was really the suppression of the vote. They knew that the vote would be overwhelmingly Republican in the South, and they wanted to stop this vote. So in 1871, Grant begins a comprehensive campaign. The problem is that as these Ku Klux Klaners are arrested and tried in local and state courts, invariably they are let off. There are never any convictions. So Grant determines that he will use the federal government and the federal army to prosecute the Ku Klux Klan. He writes to Congress in 1872, the power to correct these evils is beyond the control of state authorities. You know, history is filled with irony. Abraham Lincoln has this wonderful story where these two men are wrestling each other and as they wrestle and wrestle and wrestle, they wrestle out of each other's clothes into the clothes of the other. So here we have in the 19th century, the Republican Party is the party of strong central government, and the Democratic Party is the party of states' rights. In the 21st century, the Democratic Party is the party of strong central government, and the Republican Party is the party of states' rights. Grant wants to defend the rights of African Americans to vote. He says, I will not exhaust the powers thus vested in the executive for the purpose of securing for all citizens In the United States, the peaceful enjoyment of the rights guaranteed to them by the Constitution and its laws. Well, he wins re-election in 1872, and a group of African Americans from Philadelphia come to thank him. It's fascinating what they say. They say, you are the first president elected by the whole people. They wanted him to know that he represented for them the practical establishment of our Republican theories. Grant responded, In your desire to obtain all the rights of citizens, I fully sympathize. Again and again, he uses the word sympathize or empathize. He spelled out what he meant. A ticket on a railroad or other conveyance should entitle you to all it does to other men. In that spirit, he told them, I wish that every voter of the United States should stand in all respects alike. It must come it would be 90 years before it would come with John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Martin Luther King Jr. Grant is the last American president for almost 100 years who will stand for the rights of African Americans to vote. Finally, a third view of Grant. He finishes his presidency and he's an inveterate traveler. He loves travel. This is education for him. So he thinks he's setting off on a tour to Great Britain and Europe. He takes Julia and his youngest son, Jesse, and they arrive in Liverpool, and to his great surprise, he's greeted as a great American hero. I'm just traveling by myself, suddenly he's a great hero. Why is he such a great hero? Because the English were expecting someone with arrogance, medals on their chest, and Grant is just this unassuming man who can talk with ordinary people. He gets to Hamburg, Germany on the 4th of July, 1878 and the ambassador raises a toast. I want to raise a toast to the great American general who has won the Civil War and Grant, who is not a good public speaker, interrupts the ambassador. and He said, please sir, I did not win the Civil War. I did not win the war at all. Those who won the Civil War were the young men from farms and towns and villages they are the ones who won the Civil War. If you want to toast someone, he says, toast those young men. Please do not toast me. I did not win the Civil War. Wow. Well, he travels on to India. He's not very impressed with the British rule in India. There's a moment where they want him to ride in some chair up top a camel in the town of Benares. He said, I'm not going to do that. So one of his traveling companions, a uh, person who had been Secretary of the Navy, kind of ill on the trip, says, I'll do that. So he gets up there, and everybody thinks it's Grant, and they're suiting him and this (laughs) fellow's waving, and Grant's walking slowly, softly, along behind behind the camel. He gets to China, and the leader of China says, you know, we have this big dispute going on with Japan over four islands. Would you be willing to mediate that dispute between China and Japan? because he had said to the Chinese, do not let the European powers into your country. You have your own values and your own culture and your own ideas and I promise you, the United States will never intervene in your country. You have your own values. He gets to Japan and Japan accepts his offer of mediation. He becomes the mediator between China and Japan. He returns to the United States. There are no presidential pensions till Harry S. Truman. How is he going to earn a living? He sets up shop in New York, gets involved in various business ventures. His son, Buck, his second son, gets involved in a Wall Street firm, and so Ulysses, the father, gives Buck all of his funds to invest in the Wall Street firm. It's a Ponzi scheme. And on one day in 1884, Grant arrives at Wall Street, and everything is gone. And the owner, the, the other partner has escaped. He will be put in prison. And Grant comes home to Julia, and he has $81 in his pocket. That's all they have between them. He retreats to their summer cottage at Long Branch, New Jersey. And in June in 1884, he bites into a peach and feels this terrible pain in his throat. He doesn't understand it. His next-door neighbor has a physician visiting, and the physician says, you should see your own doctor when you get back to New York in the fall. His doctor habitually spends four months in Europe, so he doesn't see his doctor till October. The doctor does a biopsy. It's cancer. Up until this time, Grant had steadfastly refused to write his memoirs. Do you know that during Dwight D. Eisenhower's two terms, only one memoir was written by any member of his cabinet? Would you like to count how many were written during George W. Bush and Barack Obama before anybody even left office? Grant thought memoirs were self-serving. They were settling scores. They were egocentric. He didn't like Sherman's memoirs, but now he has to provide for Julia. The Century Magazine offers him $10,000 to write his memoirs. Mark Twain hears about this. Mark Twain is what he calls himself Grant Intoxicated. He just loves Grant. He rushes over to Grant's house at 62nd Street in New York and he said, $10,000. That's what they'd pay an unknown Comanche to write his memoirs. (laughs) Well, Grant's DNA is loyalty and he said, I think I've almost signed. Well, his son and a financial advisor, Mark Twain, says, here's what I'll do. What did they give you, 10% royalty? I'll give you 70% of the net proceeds of your memoirs. So Grant starts and sets out to write his memoirs. These are the burdens of his office by Thomas Nast, but now he's writing his memoirs. He's dying. He presses forward. Mark Twain hires a stenographer from Washington to come so Grant can begin to dictate his memoirs. But by January of 1885, Grant has lost his voice and so now he can only communicate by writing little slips of paper. Four weeks ago I was at the Library of Congress and Cheryl Kroll, the Civil War curator, allowed me to handle those little slips of paper. One of them is written to his doctor, Dr. John Douglas, and Grant writes to Douglas and says, with every line I write, I know I am driving another nail into my coffin. And the doctor said Grant is only living to complete these memoirs. But then the word goes out on March 30, 1885 that Grant is dying. The New York Times actually proclaims that Grant is dead. But Mark Twain writes in his journal, General Grant is still living this morning. Many a person between the two oceans lay hours awake last night, listening for the booming of the firebells that should speak to the nation in simultaneous voice and tell of its calamity. Twain specified, the bell strokes are to be 30 seconds apart and there will be 63, the the general's age. They will be striking in every town of the United States at the same moment. Grant was not simply admired. He was loved by the American people. He retreats to Mount McGregor at Saratoga Springs to get away from the heat and humidity of New York City. This is where he is writing his memoirs. It's, it's still pretty warm, but he's wrapped in a shawl, he's, got, he's all bundled up. He finally completes the memoirs three days before he dies. His funeral is held in New York City. It's much larger than Lincoln's funeral. One million five hundred thousand people come for Grant's funeral. The funeral march is nine miles long. The nation is coming apart, but Grant is bringing it together for leading the funeral train in a remarkable symbolism are the four greatest living generals in 1885. Sheridan and Sherman of the North, Joe Johnston and Simone Bolivar Buckner of the South, the four generals riding together in the same carriage as a tribute to Grant. His memoirs will be published in December. They have never, ever been out of print. I had the privilege of being invited by President George W. Bush to come to his ranch in Crawford, Texas, as he was beginning to write his memoirs as he wanted to think about, how does one write a presidential memoir? The memoirs would earn for Julia $450,000 of 19th century money. I close with this story, something again I learned after I wrote the book. In 1887, two years later, a young boy, 13 years of age, told his parents he wanted one gift for his birthday. He wanted Grant's memoirs. Winston Churchill wanted Grant's memoirs as his 13th birthday gift. We've recently had a wonderful book about Churchill by Candace Millard on the Churchill in the Boer War, and she talks about Grant's magnanimity, but she doesn't tell us where it comes from. Churchill's magnanimity comes from Grant. He was so impressed with Grant's treaty with Lee at Appomattox that Grant would offer these southern soldiers his respect, give them their horses, give them everything they had so they could go back and and till their farms. So what am I saying? I think Grant's due for an upgrade. that uh, here's a person that we've overlooked, and in the 21st century, along with many other great Americans, we need to think about Ulysses S. Grant. He is worth our admiration. Thank you very much.